fair to say that that's an exceedingly long gospel reading. <laughs> it's also a gospel reading with a lot wrong with it. If you can't, if you read it, it makes you wonder whether it even if it even happened. There's a lot of things in there that should boggle our minds. It makes us, it reminds us that the Gospels are not history. They are not biographies. They are books about divine truth. And when that truth is found in events, well that's good. But if the events don't show the divine truth, well, you make up new events that show the divine truth. The important thing for people of that time was truth. We've been shaped by the Enlightenment that truth is hard facts that can be verified by scientific endeavour. If you tried to tell a Middle Eastern person or any person in the world of that time that that's what truth was, they wouldn't have understood a word you just said. So what are the things that are wrong in the story? How can we access what's wrong? Well, I want you to think about conservative Middle Eastern society. Think about what you know of that society, and then, out of that, what you think could be wrong about the story. <laughs> Who's got some ideas about what's wrong? We take so much for granted, don't we? It just flows over our heads. Well, the first one's a bit, not really about... Middle Eastern society, it's just, it's just an interesting fact that uh, Jesus is getting too well known. He's attracting attention in Judea, and so uh, that becomes dangerous. Uh, all messiahs in Judea end up dead. That's just how things are. And so uh, he escapes to the relative safety of Galilee, where he comes from. Uh, and he goes on the fast road through Samaria. There are other roads that go along the coast or up the Sea of Galilee, but he chooses to go the fast road. And that's not unheard of, but it's also the riskier road. It's also not unheard of of Samaritans to kill Jews, Galileans, as they move from Judea up to Galilee. So it's the riskier road. What is wrong about the story is that they stop and enter a Samaritan city. That would have been unheard of. Jews and Samaritans hate each other. Hate each other in a way that we cannot grasp. And for them to enter into each, each other's cities, unless it was one of the large cosmopolitan cities, is unheard of. This city is not one of the large cosmopolitan cities. But then we get into the things that really are wrong. So we have Jesus sitting by the well, and a woman comes at midday, and he talks to her. Now, if we were in that culture, we would immediately respond with, He does what? Because men do not speak to women who are not part of their family in public, well anywhere really, but certainly not in public. And he certainly would not have spoken to a Samaritan woman in public. So this story is wrong 
right at the beginning. It's an outrageous story. It should offend us. We sit here calmly and we listen to it and we miss all the bits that should just disturb us and offend us. Well, not only is that disturbing, but she responds. Here is an unchaperoned woman, a Samaritan, talked to by a male in public. She should ignore him, but she responds, and they have a conversation. Now, what kind of woman was this Samaritan woman? I'm going to ask you this question. So what do you think? Any ideas? Okay, so she's going to the well in the heat of the day on her own. So what, what does that tell you about she's the kind of... She's not respectable. And that is the standard line. So, yes. It's an Arabic word, haram, which means shameful. Yep. Absolutely shameful. And that's how we describe her. Right. Shameful. She's obviously very strong pronouncing Yep. Confident. Willing to break the rules. Yes. yes, these are not the only rules she breaks in the story. You wonder why she's been married five times. Yes. So, well, let's talk about that for a moment. A few years ago, I was lucky enough to go uh, to an event in New York, and uh, Archbishop Roger Hurft was leading the Bible studies. Archbishop uh, Roger used to be Bishop of Waikato before David Moxon. Uh, and then he translated across to Newcastle, and now he's the, he's the big wig in Perth. Uh, he comes from Sri Lanka, and the culture of Sri Lanka is a lot closer to the Middle East than it is to our culture. And his, he grew up in a middle-class family, which was uh, reasonably westernised. But when his father died, his mother became a widow, and he talked about what that meant for her. It actually ended her life in all the social circles that they had been used to. She was effectively ostracised. She became a non-person. And he said when he reads the story, he doesn't read of a shameful woman, a woman of ill repute. He simply sees a widow. Somebody whose husbands have either died or... Her husbands have divorced her. Now that's not on her. That's because the men have died or the men have said, actually, I'm up for another wife, so you're fired. (laughs) Somehow, over history, that's become, she is a woman of ill repute. So he was scandalised by this. And there are other women in the Bible who are similarly described as women of ill repute that he is equally scandalised about. So we learned very quickly not to ever describe this woman as a woman of ill repute. So she is a woman who, as one of the commentators says, has struggled to drink from the well of security. Being married for a woman is where you have find life. That is economic security. Being a widow or a divorcee means peril. You have no economic lifeline unless you have sons. At that point, you are on the edge of survival. 
And so that's the kind of woman who is speaking to Jesus brazenly in the middle of the day. The next thing she does wrong is after their conversation, she leaves her jug. Now her jug is her way of getting to that water. She's already said to Jesus, well, where's your jug? You're offering me water, but you don't have a jug. So how are you going to get that water? She knows that to get that water, she needs a jug, and she's a Samaritan. So she should not leave her jug with this strange man, because, well, he's not a Samaritan, he's a Jew, and if he touches that jug, he will make it, well, he'll defile it, and she'll have to get another one. And that all costs resources that she doesn't have. Last week I talked about belief being not intellectual assent. I agree with these things. I talked about belief being trust and loyalty. Here we have an example of belief. This woman trusts Jesus and has become loyal to Jesus. And so she leaves her jug with him. Even though every rule says she should take that jug with her. That is belief, trust and loyalty. And the last thing she does wrong, well, she speaks in the public square. Now, the public square is a male place, and women can go there if they are escorted by a man. And they certainly cannot speak in the public square. That is reserved for the men. They can speak through the men, but they certainly cannot speak for themselves in that square. But this woman marches into the square and speaks for herself. At which point all hell should break loose. But instead they listen to her and they come out. To hear and to see for themselves what it is this woman is talking about. A couple of the commentators said this woman is a pretty amazing person, and we don't even know her name. We usually describe her as a shameful woman of ill repute, and yet what we should be doing is venerating her as one of the great saints of faith. Why is it that we cannot see who this woman really is? She is one of those often who are women, who point to Jesus as the one who truly is Saviour of the world. Last week we heard the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was an insider, and he sneaked to see Jesus in the middle of the night, and he got stuck on the literal details, and he could not hear or see who Jesus was. This week... We've heard the story of a woman who was an outsider in every way, who brazenly talks to Jesus in the middle of the day, who gets beyond the literal details, which even the disciples struggle with, who is able to engage Jesus at the metaphorical level, and who recognises Jesus as the one. In her encounter with Jesus, something happens. She hears she hears Jesus and is changed and becomes a new person. Now in John's Gospel there are a number of I am statements. There are seven or eight. There's a little bit of a debate about that. I am 
the bread of life, the bread of life, I am, etc. Those ones. But there are also a number of just straight I am statements. I am, which is the first half of God's name. I am who I am. And this is the first. I am. And this unnamed woman is the first to hear him say that. I am he. All the reasons for her exclusion. Her race, she's a Samaritan. She doesn't count. Her gender, she's a woman. She doesn't count. Her status, she's a divorcee, she's a widow. She doesn't count. All of those are set aside and she is the one who joins Jesus' mission. When he talks about reaping, who is it that's reaping? Is it the male disciples who've been with him all the time? Nope. They're stuck on where did he get the bread from? We've got all the bread in the bags here. Who gave him bread? It's this woman. She's down in the city reaping. And then we're given a glimpse of what worshipping in spirit and truth is really all about. It's not about pious male Jews who can afford the cost of the temple, which is what the temple worship was all about. It was about everyone who believes, who offers trust and loyalty to Jesus. Even a widow Samaritan woman. Last week I talked about prayer and I offered a whole lot of definitions of prayer. For me, the ultimate definition of prayer is listening. Not talking, but listening. Listening to God. Prayer is listening as the Samaritan woman listened. And being changed through that act of listening. So how do we listen? Well, there are a number of ways. The first is in silence. It's actually really difficult to listen when you're making all the noise. So one of the things you have to do is be quiet. Enjoy the silence. Another way of listening is paying attention to God's activity in our lives. And I'll talk about that in a few weeks. Another way of listening is talking about how you experience God in your life with another. And the last way, or I'm sure there are others, is through sacred reading or Lectio Lectio Divina. The term Lectio Divina comes from Benedict of Nursia, who was the father of Western monasticism. He lived about 480 to 550 in Italy. He is the founder of the Benedictine Order. He established the basic rule for community living for religious. And in that rule, he translated a lot of the learning from the desert fathers and mothers of the deserts of Egypt and the Middle East. And they were the people who in the three and four hundreds and the five hundreds decided that life had got way too easy now that Christianity had become the official religion of the empire. And they longed for the days of persecution and martyrdom. And so uh, they became white martyrs. They gave up their lives 
There were the red martyrs who gave up their blood. These guys and, and women gave up their lives and went and spent the rest of their lives in the deserts praying. And out of that experience they uh, wrote a lot. And although they went into the deserts to be hermits and to live on their own, people heard about them and went to join them. So they went deeper into the deserts so they could be on their own. And many in the, in the end gave up and became uh, abbots, fathers of um, abbots of um, little communities. And out of that experience they wrote a lot about prayer and about being community. Benedict is the one who brought that into the Western Church. He didn't have a lot of time for solitaries or hermits. He thought we as Christians should live in community and that community should revolve around prayer and work and Lexio Divina, sacred reading. The sacred reading of the Bible, but also of um, the books about the great saints. So what is sacred reading? Well, it's a hard concept for us to get our heads around because when we read, we read for entertainment and we read for information. And that's how we approach the Bible. We approach it, probably not so much for entertainment, but uh, we read it for information. We want to know more about God. We want to know more about Jesus. We want to know more about our life of faith. We're looking for information. We're looking for the meaning of the text. Sacred reading is not that kind of reading. Sacred reading is... Uh, well, to be clear, we do need that kind of reading, that kind of studying where we're looking for the meaning. Uh, the first part of the sermon is based on my reading and finding more information about but we also need the kind of reading where we set aside all those looking for more information, looking for the meaning, and read the Bible in another way. Where we pray the Bible. Sacred reading is the slow, repetitive reading of Scripture, which makes space in our hearts for the heart of God to speak to our heart. It's not even about our heads in the end. It's not an exercise where we want to learn more or understand more. It's not an exercise involved in new thoughts at all. It is slow reading, treating the Bible as a sacred object and allowing the living dynamic revelation of God to occur in our hearts rather than our heads. Sacred reading comes out of prayer, and so everything that I've said over the last two weeks about prayer and silence and solitude, about needing a time, about needing a place, about needing posture, and about the need for silence applies here. We need to find a time when we are most alert, when we can pay our best attention to what we are doing. And the good books, good books to start with are the Gospels which are full of stories, except for John's Gospel, which is full of monologues, and the Psalms, which were the original prayer books, song books, of both the Jews and the Christians. And you need to have a Bible that's easy to read, 
maybe a different version from the normal one, one that doesn't have all those footnotes and notes about things, about what this might mean and where this source is and how this is different from here, no notes, and certainly one without life applications because we're not interested in life applications with Lexio Divina, just a plain, simple Bible, all on its own. Guido II, writing in the 1100s, offered four steps for sacred reading. He said that we should start with Lexio, which is the slow, repetitive reading. Not reading fast, not looking for the meanings, but just reading and allowing the words to soak into us. Not reading it once, but reading it several times, allowing the words to soak into us. And as we read, we come to the second step, which is meditatio. This is a kind of double thing. It's first of all paying attention to how this reading is affecting us, affecting our feelings. Are we sad? Are we happy? Are we angry? Not the kind of thing we normally pay attention to when we're reading. And also noticing what grabs our attention and staying with that. A word or a phrase and just saying that over and over again, mulling it over, making it become a kind of centering prayer that stops us thinking about all else and just calms us down to focus on that word or phrase. And then when uh, sometimes we will then go back to Lexio, to reading again, or sometimes out of that we will move to the third step, oratio or prayer. Praying whatever comes out of that experience of paying attention to our response to that word or phrase. And praying whatever comes to mind through that word or phrase. And then sometimes we will go back to Lexio again. Or occasionally we will be given the gift of contemplation, which is simply being with God, without words, without thoughts, but just being in the presence of God. Now this kind of reading can be quite difficult. It's easy to be discouraged, to think that we're too busy, that we don't have time. It's easy to fall back into old ways of studying the scripture, of looking for the profound thoughts and being discouraged when we don't have profound thoughts. But that's the point. When we miss the implications, when we can't see the lessons, when the meaning is not there, when we haven't got a conclusion and we certainly don't have a life application, all of that becomes discouraging because that actually is how we often read the Bible, for all of those things. And in this way of reading, that is not what you're looking for. You are simply praying the Bible and allowing the heart of God to speak to your heart. Sacred reading is wondering what the Word of God is inviting me to this day. It's being content as a small child is content climbing into a father's lap and listening to the story without ever having to work out what that reading, what the meaning of the story is. Just enjoying the story. So this week, I invite you to try 
some moments of sacred reading. Not reading for meaning, but sacred reading. Lexio Divina. This old prayerful way of reading scripture.